Jesus' name, amen. I've been listening to um, some podcasts by one of my favorite podcasters. His name is Carrie Newhoff, and they've been talking a lot about humility. And that's some, it's an area where I've always struggled. And one of the things they said is that if you like to hang around or if you admire humble people, then you're humble. And I thought about some of the people in this house that I admire that are very humble. But the other thing they said with humility, it's all about perspective. It's about who you are and who God is. And that it's not about you, but he will use you. You're part of his story. But it's all about everything that he is, and he chooses to use us. And so that's when I saw he's the big mountain, and I'm the tiny grain of sand, but he can use us. That was free. That was just an extra for tonight. So we are still in John. Gosh, I've lost track of how many weeks this is. I think it's going to be 11 weeks total. This is maybe week eight. I think it's week eight that we've been working on this. So I want to start by reviewing the purpose of John. And this is the key verse. Not every book of the Bible is, is it so clearly laid out, but it is in John, John 20, 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, in this book but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the theme of the book of John that you've heard over and over, Jesus is the Christ, believe and live. And you're going to hear the word believe quite a lot tonight, and life in its variance, living, live. The, the uh, commentator Wearsby says life is one of the key words in the book of John. He uses it at least 36 times. Jesus offers sinners abundant life and eternal life, and the only way they can get it is through personal faith in him. This life comes through his name. And when I first started this, it made me wonder, well, what is his name? I mean, we know Yahweh. We know the names of, of Jesus from the Old Testament through the New. But Wearsby says in John's gospel, the emphasis is on his name, I am. Jesus makes seven great I am statements in this gospel, offering the lost sinner all that he needs. So we're going to look at the seven significant I am statements, and then I've added two more to the list that you're normally going to see. So the seven I am statements, and this is, I titled this message, Jesus in his own words. I love it because this is how Jesus describes himself, not how someone else described him, but how he described himself. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Hopefully you're starting to see a pattern here. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And I am the vine. And then the two others that I've added, and we talked in the first week how the book of John, the emphasis was on Jesus' divine nature, that he was the son of God, sent by God, he, it's the divinity of the Savior. So we're also going to look at where he says to the woman at the well, she says, I know Messiah is coming, and he says, I am he. And I love that. That excites me so much. I am he. And then in John 58, he basically says, I am, and the inference is God. So um, tonight, we're going to look at these I am's that deal with life. 
And if you do the math, the first three, three out of seven is 43%. So almost half of Jesus' I am statements, the big seven, um, deal with life. And so we're going to look at the first three tonight that deal with life. And then we're also going to look at I am Messiah. So we talked in the first week, and we've talked all along, what is life? And just a couple definitions from some of my resources. The Vines Dictionary says it's the absolute fullness of life. And this is the Greek word zoe, which our word zoe comes from. The Pink Commentary, which this guy, he's really heavy to carry into coffee shops. He's starting to get dog-eared. But Pink, when you're, when you're struggling with what does something mean, Mr. Pink can make it all clear for me. Mr. Pink says the word Zoe has within its scope all life, physical, spiritual, and eternal. And you may remember from week one where John describes the identity of Jesus, John 1, 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And then another cross-reference is John 10.10, which we know pretty well. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that that they may have life and have it abundantly. So first we're going to look at I am the bread of life. I love bread. I'll just say it. It would be hard for me to be gluten-free because I love bread. Miss Pat does too. In my freshman year at NC State, I gained that freshman 15. I did. I gained the full freshman 15. And I had a dining hall package, and it wasn't because I was eating lean meats and healthy carbohydrates and lots of fiber. I didn't like any of the food that they served. But I liked bread with peanut butter and honey. Looked about like that. And that's what I ate in the dining hall. And I very quickly put on that freshman 15. The bread is what helped me through. And I love it to this day. That's kind of my comfort food. So Jesus had some things to say about bread. And he says it, well, in this um, discussion that he has, he, he refers to it four different times. And I brought a loaf of bread as a prop tonight. In John 6, 35 and 48, he says clearly, I am the bread of life. In John 6, 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And we're going to talk about the significance where he says, came down from heaven. And then John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So bread has ancient roots. It is a food that has been a staple in diets for forever. And if you look at the map, most countries, most countries in the world eat bread except for the far east and kind of the southeast where rice or noodles might be more of a staple. But bread is eaten from developing nations to civilizations like we live in right now. And it comes in all shapes, flavors, and forms. And it's made up of things that are good for us, carbohydrates, fat, fiber, vitamins and minerals, protein, And these things fill nutritional gaps in our diets. They help us feel full and satisfied. Jesus is the same way. So if you will turn with me to John 6, and I do have most of the references in your handout, but John 6 is where we're going to be parked for a little bit. And I've shared with you how the book of John was different in that in the book of John there would be a miracle 
like the feeding of the 5,000, and then what was called a discourse or a discussion, or I called it Jesus' sermons. So in the book of John, you'd have the miracle, and then John would explain. He'd give the part where Jesus explained what it meant. And so the bread of life discourse follows when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the five loaves and the two fish, and then he walks on the water and he crosses the lake, and the multitude asks, you know, how he did that, and Jesus says they sought him because, not because of the sign, but because they ate and were filled. They were satisfied. And so that is the context of this big discussion that Jesus is going to have about being the bread of life. So you're going to see some key words and phrases, life, eternal life, bread, out of heaven, believes, died, and raise him up on the last day. So I do want you to just hang in there with me because the first part of this Bible study is going to be a little more intellectual, theological, a little more heady. And the second half is going to be a little bit more relatable. So when I keep going on and on about Jesus' flesh, just hang in there with me. It's going to get better towards the end. But we're learning. These are important concepts. So John 6, and I'm not going to read every verse in the Bread of Life discourse. It's about 40 of them, but we're going to pick and choose so, um, for the sake of time. John 6, 31 through 35, and then 40. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I love in Scripture where something says, where Jesus says, I myself, like he himself is our peace. I myself will raise him up on the last day. So in this bread of life discourse, there's some comparison going on between the manna, the bread out of heaven, and then Jesus, the true living bread. And I always like to include a Bible study nugget. And one way that you can kind of figure things out when you have a long list of, of, of subjects that are being compared and contrasted is to make a chart. So your chart should be on your handout because I know the slide is probably going to be hard to read. Let's see, Greg, can you advance my slide? I've lost control. Okay. So this is the bread from Moses versus the bread out of heaven. So the bread from Moses, they ate it in the wilderness. And then Jesus said his bread himself, and sometimes he'll infer. It's inferred that he's talking about himself. It's food which endures to eternal life. The bread from Moses was out of heaven. The bread from Moses wasn't the true bread out of heaven that the Father gives in verse 32. But Jesus said the true bread of heaven is given by God. Verse 33, it comes down out of heaven and gives life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. He completely satisfies hunger. Oh, 
Last week, Brian helped me with my pronunciation of a word, so I'm getting ready to look at the word satiates, and I'm wondering, is Brian going to say if I said it correctly? Did I say it correctly? Satiates. Last week, I kept saying propitiation, and he let me know very gently it's propitiation, and I didn't believe him, so I Googled, how do you pronounce propitiation? He was right. It's propitiation, so satiates, thirst. So the commentator Wearsby says, in, their reply to the, in his reply to them, their impetuous request, where they say, Lord, always give us this bread, he uses two key words, calm and believe. To come to Jesus means to believe into him. To believe in him means to come to him. To come to Christ and believe in him means to, means to receive him within, just like we receive bread and we receive water to drink. So come and believe. So we're going to keep reading and keep looking at this contrast between the bread that Moses gave, the manna, and the true living bread. John six forty four to 51. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that everyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And then he's going to repeat himself. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Okay, so we're going to look at the second half of the chart where he um, more completely compares the bread from Moses. He says in verse 49, the Jewish fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. They ate bread out of heaven. But he says when one eats the bread which comes down out of heaven, they will not die. In verse 51, he says they shall live forever. And then He says, the biggie, (laughs) that the bread given for the life of the world is Jesus' flesh. And we're going to look at that in depth in just a minute. And I'm going to jump ahead. Let's see. Okay, let's save that last part. Well, I'll go ahead and cover that. So again, he's going to say the fathers ate and died, comparing himself. And then he's the bread that came out of heaven. And if you eat that bread, you'll live forever. So he repeats himself. If you come and believe, you're going to live forever. You'll be raised up on the last day. So he wasn't claiming to be like the manna. He was claiming to be better. Because the manna sustained the Jews for the day, for the day only. But Jesus gives life to the whole world. When you receive Jesus within, you live forever. And Wearsby says, when God gave the manna, he gave only a gift. But when Jesus came, God gave himself. Not just a gift, but he gave himself. 
Okay, so it's going to get a little dicey for Jesus in just a little bit. It says, uh, starting with verse 52, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. So you may see in the handout that I underlined every time where he said, came down out of heaven. And I think it's about six or seven times. It's a repeated phrase over and over. He says, the bread that came down out of heaven. And this is a statement that declared Jesus to be God. He's declaring himself to be God. You may remember from John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. From the very beginning, he's saying he was God. And also we covered in the very first week when we looked at the background of the book of John, um, the pink commentary that says the theme of John's gospel is the deity of the Savior. Here, as nowhere else in Scripture so fully, the Godhead of Christ is presented to our view. So the purpose of John was to convince the readers that Jesus was supernatural in his origin, his powers, and his goal. So about seven times, Jesus says, I'm the bread, the true bread, the living bread that came down out of heaven. And if you believe, if you come and believe and eat of my flesh, I'll raise you up on the last day and you'll live forever. There's your synopsis. There's your bread of life discourse in just a few words. So let's look at this list Um, about Jesus' flesh, okay? Because this is where Jesus, things get a little difficult for him. So I made a very long list for you. And so I used flesh or synonyms that Jesus used for his flesh or if it was inferred. Starting with about John 50, there's eight verses. If If you eat of it, you won't die. You'll live forever. It's the bread given for the life of the world. Unless you eat the flesh and drink his blood, you have no life. If you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have eternal life, and he'll raise you up on the last day. His flesh is the true food, and his blood is the true drink. And that's a contrast to verse 27, where he says, Don't work for food which perishes, but food which endures to eternal life. I liked 56 and 57 says, if you eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, you abide in him, and he abides in you. Verse 57, if you, eat, <laughs> if you eat Jesus. Boy, that's a hard statement, isn't it? If you eat Jesus, you shall live. We're going to learn what this means in just a minute. But it's inferred his flesh because that's, that's looking at the context, context. That's how I can say what's inferred. You have to look at the passage as a whole. What is he talking about? His flesh. And then John 6, 58, 
ties it all together. If you eat this bread, Jesus' flesh, you shall live forever. So this flesh stuff is hard stuff. And so I had to, had to go to Pink because I struggled with it. And uh, Mr. Pink made some things clear for me. He says, difficult as this language first appears, it is really blessedly simple. It is not a dead Christ which the sinner is to feed upon, but on the death of the one who is now alive forevermore. His death is mine when appropriated by faith, and thus appropriated, it becomes life in me. The figure of eating looks back perhaps to Genesis 3. Man died spiritually by eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, and he's made, he's made alive spiritually by an act of eating. So John, so I want to um, compare just a couple verses, and this should be on your handout. John six forty seven. he says, He who believes has eternal life. And then when he gets to the part where he's talking about his flesh, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Okay, first he says, He who believes has eternal life. And then he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So to me, if believing yields eternal life and eating his flesh and drinking his blood yields eternal life, I think there's an algebraic property that says believing is the same as eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It means to believe in him. So it's, it's very difficult to read that and think about eating Jesus, but it's to believe in him. If you want to have eternal life, you have to believe in him. If you want to live, come and believe, and you'll have eternal life. This sacrificial death, I mean, Jesus is getting ready to offer his flesh, and his sacrificial death must be appropriated and received by faith through belief. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Believe that's Romans 10, 9 and 10. Believe. So as I summed this up, this is what I came up with. Jesus' flesh has a promise. Eternal life, being raised up on the last day. He says that over and over. Jesus' flesh is the true food. We eat a lot of stuff that just doesn't fill us up, a lot of empty carbohydrates, and we're hungry later. If we fill up on too much entertainment and shopping and frivolous conversation and not on the Word of God and fellowship and prayer and worship and just being with Jesus, just sitting on your porch, just being with Jesus, you're going to get hungry really fast. Because for me, sometimes when I'm really sad, I've confessed, I go shopping, but the next day that sadness is still there if I don't go to the one who truly feeds me. Because that little, that hit from using my debit card, it'll last for a little bit and get me through the evening, but the next day I'm still hungry again. So we want to eat the true food. And then Jesus' flesh, this is the way I put it, it gives internal life to us and eternal life. So what is this internal life? Well, Jesus said if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you abide in him. 
And we're going to look next week a lot more at what that means to abide in Jesus. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and I in you. You will bear much fruit. So if we believe in Jesus, if we eat his flesh, we're going to abide in him. We're going to produce fruit. We're going to have life. And then he says, if you eat Jesus, you shall live. And we want to be, uh, we want to have his life flowing through us. So again, just to think, what false food and drink? I know I'm not the only one pursuing false food and drink. I know I'm not the only one. I'm up here with a microphone so I can share. But what false food and drink are you pursuing that's lifeless, that's expensive, and doesn't satisfy? And I thought of Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. By wine and milk, without money and without crossed. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So I do want to share that in this passage, Jesus isn't talking about communion. Okay, so I want you to just think about where we are We're on the side of a mountain in John chapter 6, very early in Jesus' ministry. This is before they started falling away. Very early in his ministry, the Lord's Supper wasn't instituted until the day before his death. This message that he's giving, this bread of life discourse, is for a bunch of non-believers, whereas communion, the Lord's Supper, is for saints. So it is symbolic. It does point to that. But that's not what he's talking about. So I did just want to throw that out. If you want to look more about the Lord's Supper, you can look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25. If you've been in church long enough and celebrated communion long enough, you could probably recite that from memory. But Jesus had the bread and the wine, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. So I do want to just throw out one more thing as a teaching point, and this was a big word that Brian taught me. I wrote in my notes, it's called trans-something, because when Brian throws out a big word, I'm like, all I got was the trans. So for Catholics, the presence of Christ in Holy Communion isn't just symbolic, it's real. And that word is trans-sub- Substantiation, trans-substantiation. It's a big, long word. And you can Google what that means and find out exactly what the Roman Catholic Church, how they define that. And it's defined, it's the act of changing the substances of bread and wine into the substances of the body and blood of Christ. And when you look up the doctrine, this is what it says. Because Christ said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, by the consecration of the bread and the wine, which means the priest has to bless it first, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. So transubstantiation is what that belief is. But I believe Jesus was speaking more symbolically 
here at, at this point. He wasn't talking about us taking communion. He was talking about what he was getting ready to go through, and then he later institutes the Lord's Supper. So I love that um, the disciples, they say, this is a difficult statement. If this has been hard for you, it was hard for them. In this passage, it says, eat the flesh of the Son of Man seven times. Seven times. So let's see how the disciples responded. John 6, 60, and then 66. Therefore, many of his disciples, not just the crowd or just, you know, some, some extended friends out there, many of his disciples, disciples, mean that word means learner, many of those who were taught of him, when they heard this said, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? When Jesus said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, to them, that was a difficult statement. And it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So this is the turning point of Jesus' ministry. From week one, you might remember the John chapter divisions, one through six. We're at six. That was the opportunity. That's where his ministry is growing. And then when you read um, chapter seven through 12, like every 15 verses, therefore the Jews sought to kill him, therefore they sought to stone him, therefore he slipped away as time hadn't come, but they were trying to trap Jesus to kill him. Opposition. And then the outcome is the Lord's Supper, the, that very long evening that Jesus shared with his disciples, and then his trial, his resurrection, and then post-resurrection. That was the outcome. But we are at the turning point of his ministry by Jesus saying, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. It was hard for them, hard for us. Wearsby says, the purpose of this sign, feeding the 5,000, was that he might preach the sermon. You had the sign and then the sermon. It was a ministry of grace and truth. Remember from John 1, 17, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Well, in grace, the Lord fed the hungry people. But in truth, he gave them the word of God. He gave them grace, the bread, and then he gave them some truth. They wanted the food, but they didn't want the truth. And in the end, most of them abandoned Jesus and refused to walk with him. So he lost his crowd in one sermon. Grace and truth. Pastor Tom says, ouch. So that is the bread of life. And that's the hardest thing we're going to talk about tonight. So if you've made it through that, you're doing pretty well. So next, if you'll turn to John 11, which is the resurrection and the life. So Pastor Tom talked about this miracle where Jesus, the context of resurrection and the life is the miracle where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And I'm not going to read all of that to you again, but I'm just going to give you the context because this statement happens in Jesus' conversation with Mary, I'm sorry, with Martha, which begins um, John 11, verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, oh, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
So that's the context. And then the next verse is our statement. John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So here again, these words, live and believe. Over and over we see that. So resurrection basically means to rise up again. In the Greek, it looks like the word um, Anastasia. It's anastasis. And I thought that was very interesting to know some of our words come from the Greek word that means resurrection, Anastasia. So let's look at some cross-references. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I was listening to Caleb today, and I heard a new song, new to me, by Phil Wickham, and it was called Living Hope. And it comes from this verse right here. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, my fear is gone. We have a living hope because we know that because he was raised again, when we come and believe, we'll also be raised again on the last day. Romans 6, 4, and these cross-references should be just listed on your handout. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And I think probably my favorite is Philippians 3.10. Well, at least the first half of the verse. <laughs> that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The second half is not so fun. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. That we may know him. And to know that power of the resurrection. So Jesus affirmed that many believers would one day be raised from the dead in John eleven twenty five, But then he added in verse 26 that some believers would never die. And so you may wonder, well, how is that possible? And the answer is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 through 18. Because when Jesus comes back, there are going to be some people that are still alive. They're still going to be living, and he's going to take them home, and some will be dead, and they'll be changed, and we'll all be caught up with him in the air, and I'm excited about that day. So let's look at the way, the truth, and the life. So two years ago, my daughter Hannah went off to college, and I think that was one of the lowest points of my life. Brian could probably agree that was really hard because she's my baby. And you might could see, but my eyes are really red in that picture. I cried and I cried and I cried. This year when she went off, it was more like, bye, <laughs> because I've learned she'll come home. <laughs> At that point, I didn't know, is she just going to leave and not want to ever come home because she'll make all these friends and it'll be more fun than mom's house? But no, she, she comes home and she loves to be home. So this year I was good, but oh, I was so sad when she left for college. And that's the same thing that's happening 
in John 13. If we're going to be John 13, John 14, I want to give you the context of John 14. And that's the Last Supper. And during the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples what's getting ready to happen. Judas is going to betray him. And then Jesus tells him, I'm going to go, tells them, I'm going to go away. I mean, imagine if you had followed God and seen him perform miracles and signs and healings and wonders. And then he says, I'm going to leave you. How would you be feeling at that moment? I just thought, how would I feel if Pastor Tom just stood up and told our congregation, in a little while, you're going to not see me anymore. I mean, we would be bereft. And he's just a human pastor. But imagine these that had followed Jesus risked their life for him. And he says, John 13, 33, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. They were confused, scared, sad. This was a heavy blow to them. And there was a quote that I found. I love it when um, God confirms I'm on the right track because I'll study something and then I'll read it. And I'm like, oh, I was on the right track. Um, Chip Ingram, and I used his notes. He's a pastor, and I used his notes to kind of follow along. He says it was Jesus' final night with his disciples. He's washed their feet. Jesus, Judas has left to betray him. They are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Jesus is leaving. Their leader will deny him, Peter. And the authorities want to arrest them. And their hope of an immediate kingdom has evaporated. Right? I mean, they thought he was going to institute his kingdom. Their hope for that kingdom has evaporated. The future looks foreboding. And it's right in the midst of this that we jump into John 14. And the first thing in this chapter where he gives them comfort and hope, he says in John 14, 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. I just want to think, wow, the audacity. Do not let your heart be troubled. But Jesus knew how it was all going to play out when they didn't. He says, believe in God, believe in me. Because Jesus knows he's not going to abandon them. And they're going to be together again. And he's going to spell it all out for them. But in this context, that is a very strong statement. Imagine how they felt. And then he says, don't be troubled. Believe. Believe in God. Believe in me. That word troubled, we talked about it um, a couple weeks ago. It means to affect with great pain or sorrow. Don't be sorrowful. Don't worry, but believe. Some bad things are going to happen. Don't be troubled, but believe. And remember, that's the key word, the key word in the book of John. So then he's going to explain, as we pick up in chapter 14, he's going to tell them what to believe, what perspective to have, and where to fix their hope. John 14, 2 through 6. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is exactly what you sang. So I just love that, that, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so let's look at the five W's and an H for John 14, two through six. Who? Jesus. What does he say he's going to do? Thank you. He's going to go and prepare a place for his disciples. Where is Jesus going to go do that? In his father's house. And Jesus says it has many dwelling places. And I just love this. Why? Because he's going to come again and take them there. And I love that he says, so that where I am, you may be also, because Jesus wants to be reunited with them. Jesus wanted to spend time with people like them, people like us, even though, you know, Peter's going to betray him. But Jesus wants to be with them. I just love that. So they can be together. That's the why. How do we get there? Through him. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we get there, through the way, the truth, and the life. Now look, very clearly, the when, it's not specified. No one knows the day or the hour. Jesus could have said very clearly, and this is going to be in XXXX, how many moons, whatever, but he doesn't say a when. He doesn't say when. So, some cross-references. And I don't think this is... Anywhere in your notes or my notes. I think it might be a little bit later. Let's see if I can remember it. Mr. Pink, when I was trying to figure out, okay, Jesus, what is this about Jesus? How is he the way? And he talked about how um, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they lost the relationship with the Father. They were deceived, so they lost the truth. And then they were dead in their sins. So Jesus is the way, he's the mediator to restore that relationship. He's the truth, he's the illumination so that we're no longer deceived. And he's the life, he's the regeneration. He gives life to us again so we're not dead. And that's what I was thinking about as I was saying, you're the way, the truth, and the life. He's the mediator, he's the truth, he's the one that makes us alive again. And that was so amazing to me. So some cross-references. John 10, 9, we're going to look at next week. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. In Hebrews 10, 19 through 20, and I just start to smile anytime I say Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Wow, now haven't we heard Jesus talking about his flesh? And here in Hebrews, it says the new and living way is his flesh. And I just like how it all comes together. It is his flesh. That's the new and living way to come to God by the blood of Jesus. The commentator Wearsby says what we believe in this church, that not everybody's going to heaven, but only those who have trusted Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't teach the way, and he doesn't point the way, but he says, I am the way. He is the way. 
And the early church was known as the way. No man comes to the Father but by me, wipes away any other proposed way to heaven. Good works, religious ceremonies, costly gifts, there's only one way, and that's Jesus. A couple other cross-references, Acts 4, 11, and 12. It's talking about Jesus being the cornerstone. Verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name through which we can be saved. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. He was full of grace and truth. And then Jesus is the life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1, 4. So Mr. Pink says, he is the way to the Father. He is the truth incarnate. He is life to all who believe in him. He perfectly meets the sinner's needs of reconciliation, illumination, and regeneration. Sometimes I post on Facebook just my honest prayer, and sometimes it just might be, I need you, Jesus. But I might post what I'm really going through so other women and men who are reading will know they're not the only ones. And so one day, this was my, I call it my honest prayer. Jesus, you are the way I seek, the truth I want to know, and the life I want to live. And that was my prayer as I was studying this. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So the context of what these disciples are getting ready to face, Jesus' trial and violent death, John 16, 20, he says, you will weep and lament, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. And then the persecution of the church, John 16, 2, Jesus says, they will make you outcast from the synagogues. An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So they're facing the loss of their leader. They're facing persecution. And it's in this context that Jesus gives them hope. He's going to say another big statement in John 14, 27 through 29. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give with you. And then he's going to repeat this. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You have heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. So Jesus gives them hope. What is the hope? It's knowing that he is going to prepare a place for them in his father's house, and they're going to be reunited. When he's saying, don't be troubled, that's why. When he's saying, my peace I give to you, that's why. This is how we cannot be troubled as the world rages around us. Because this is not our home. We are citizens of heaven from which we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20. This is what they're to believe in. When he says, believe in God, believe in me, this is what he wants them to believe in. I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to take you home. We'll be together again. 
That's what he wants them to believe in. So I just want to encourage you. This is something I've struggled with because I long for heaven. And I used to beat myself up for it, but there's a reason why I long for it. And this is why. Because that's where I belong. Heaven is calling to us. So that longing that you, that whatever way you're searching for peace, you're really searching for heaven. Because that's where we're going to have true peace. That's the, that's the only place you'll find peace is in Jesus. I used to search for peace like I wanted a piece of real estate with some water in front of it because I thought that would give me peace. And I realized the peace I was longing for couldn't be found in property but in Jesus. But that's what I was longing for was that peace of heaven. It's heaven. That's my home. It's normal to long for that. So in our... That it's normal to long for heaven. It's normal to long for heaven. Not that we're going to take actions to make us get there any faster, but we have a longing for heaven in our hearts, I believe, because that's where we live. Just like my daughter Hannah longs for home. She wants to come home to her bed in Mama's house. I want to be with Jesus. I ain't ashamed of that. I want to be with him. My heart longs to be with him. Some days I want to be with him right now. (laughs) But thank God he knows better than me in those moments. I used to pray, Jesus, take me now. But then God healed me. And I would say, Jesus, help me now. But there was a long time where I prayed, Jesus, take me now. Because I I was in such turmoil. I needed that peace. But now I have it because he's healed my heart. Praise the Lord. Okay, so I want to finish our time out looking at this statement where Jesus says, I am he basically declaring that he is the Messiah. We're going to be in John 4, and we're not covering all of it because a lot of you know the story of the woman at the well. It's a very familiar story in John chapter 4. So Jesus ends up in Samaria. He's tired, and he's thirsty. He's hungry, and his disciples had gone to, the food, gone to get food, And a woman comes to the well, and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And she says in John 4, 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So, a quick history lesson of why the Jews despised the Samaritans. So King Solomon, David's son, he served other gods. And so after his death, God divided the kingdom of Israel. The top ten tribes became Israel. And the bottom two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became what was called the southern kingdom, or Judah. The capital of the southern kingdom and where the temple was located is in Jerusalem, there in the gold color where the star is. And the capital of what was called the northern kingdom, or Israel, was Samaria. So, some things happened to the northern kingdom. They were pagan, and so God sent an Assyrian army to haul away a lot of those inhabitants of the northern kingdom into captivity. But they left behind the poor Jews in Samaria. They left them behind. And then they imported Assyrians into Samaria, and guess what they did? They intermarried, which was against God's law. And the offspring, they were called Samaritans. The Jews despised 
and rejected the Samaritans because of their race. They were half-breeds, sinners, and their pagan practices. So the name, just the name Samaritan, has a context to it. There's a weight to it. Samaritan, it meant poor, abandoned. They weren't even good enough to take into captivity. They were desperate. They were beat down, married to pagans, despised by their own race. And their children were half-breeds. So they were named after this city of poverty, city of half-breeds, city of pagan practices, interracial marriages. And you wonder, and I bet they wondered, well, aren't we God's children too? What about all the promises to Abraham back in the covenant? So just the name Samaritan, there was a weight to that. So let's look at Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman I'm sure that his whole life he was probably taught what the Samaritans were like. You know what kids are like? They make jokes about people who are different from them. In our own insecurity, we put down other people. And I'm sure Jesus' friends, cousins, family, they were probably no different. They were probably Samaritan jokes that he heard and grew up hearing those kinds of things. And in fact, when his enemies wanted to call Jesus an insulting name, guess what they called him? A Samaritan. That's John 8, 48. They called him a Samaritan. That was an insult. Now, secondly, we look at the fact that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, but she's a woman. He's talking to a woman. And in that day, it wasn't considered proper for a man, especially a rabbi, to speak in public. To a woman. And that reference is John 4, 27. But Jesus wasn't concerned with proper. He wasn't concerned with racial or cultural boundaries. And lastly, this woman was a sinner. In John 4, 16 through 19, he tells the woman, Go call your husband to come here. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, You're right. You're right when you say you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And then she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she was a sinner. Jesus is talking, crossing racial and cultural, and I don't know if the right word is sexual, boundaries, I guess cultural still, boundaries, to talk to a sinner. Amen. We have a holy God, a sinless man, talking to a woman who didn't look or act holy or sinless. Praise the Lord. Okay, so John 4, 25 through 26. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So really quickly, who is this Messiah? The word Messiah is only used four times in the Bible, twice in the Old Testament, and it's the Hebrew, Mashiach. It means anointed one. It was like the king, when they would anoint them, they would smear them with oil. It means anointed. In the Greek, it's the word Christos, which means smeared. Christ literally means smeared. Or anointed. That's what it means. It's used twice in the New Testament in John 1 41, 
where it says, um, let's see, I can't remember which disciple that is. But they said, we have found the Messiah. And then we're going to see it here with the woman at the well. So John is the only gospel writer that names Jesus as the Messiah. So the woman knows that Messiah is coming, but she doesn't know she's talking to him. (laughs) And up to this point, Jesus had referred to himself somewhat enigmatically in the third person as God's son. And this should be on your handout. When he cleanses the temple, he says, my father's house. You've made my father's house a den of thieves. And then when he talks with Nicodemus, he calls himself two different things, the son of God and the only begotten son of God. We, we talked when we talked about Jesus the human Jesus didn't clearly share his public identity because in John 2, 24, it says he wasn't entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. He knew the hearts of men. But let's look at John 4, 25 and 26. I call this the she said, he said. She said, I know that Messiah is coming. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am he. So Jesus openly declares that he is the Messiah. This is the only place in the Bible you're going to find Jesus saying, I am, and it's inferred, the Messiah. That's the context. I know Messiah is coming. He says, I'm he. I am he. So think about it. Who was his audience? It was a Samaritan woman. He wasn't teaching in the synagogue He wasn't with the leading men of the city. He wasn't with the educated. He wasn't with the rich. He wasn't even with his disciples. They have gone off to get food. But he is sitting by a well in Samaria of all places, speaking to a woman who's a sinner. Now, if that doesn't do something for your heart, (laughs) it does something for me. Because Jesus chooses to entrust himself to this despised Sinful, poor, half-breed, pagan woman who her race despises. I mean, she couldn't even go and draw water when all the other women were there. She had to wait because she was rejected. So why did Jesus entrust himself to her to reveal this and not others? It's because this woman is the very essence of who needs a Messiah. This is who needs a Messiah a woman caught in the curse of generational sin. She had no hope of meeting the law. She didn't live anywhere near Jerusalem where they would go and sacrifice. She was mired in sin. She was treated as chattel in the Roman culture. She had a bad reputation. (laughs) She had a bad reputation. She was rejected. She was a broken woman. Jesus chose that woman. This is who Jesus came for. This is who Jesus came for. Mark 2, 17. Wait, that's the list. Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for the sick, the ones that needed the Savior. Jesus didn't come for everybody I mean, he came for everybody, but the ones who have it all together 
aren't the ones that really need him the most. They're the well. Jesus came for the sick. It's, it's great if you're well, if God's made you whole. But if you're still sick, have hope that Jesus isn't turned away by where you're broken. We're all familiar with Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, where Jesus says he came to bind up the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, release for the prisoners, to comfort those who mourn, to provide for those who grieve, beauty for ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. That's who Jesus came for. And we've all been that person at some point, and we're all probably going to be them again down the road. Because life is just full of hills and valleys, ups and downs, and sometimes we're great and sometimes we're mourning. But wherever you are in this journey, sometimes we're holy and sometimes we're still sinful. Wherever you are, Jesus came for you. This is who Jesus came for. The sick, the sinners, the weary, the burdened, the brokenhearted, the prisoners, the grieving, the mourning, and the despairing. If that's you today, Jesus came for you. That's who Jesus came for. This woman epitomizes who needs a Messiah. She desperately needed someone to save, heal, and deliver her. Someone to comfort her, release her, give her joy, give her beauty for her ashes. So what drew Jesus to this woman? There's a scripture in the Psalms that says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those that, it literally means he dwells with those who are crushed. And I believe her brokenness, her desperation, her need drew him. He said, I am he. And then the outcome of Jesus reaching out to this woman is in John 4, 28 through 30. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. I believe she's the first recorded evangelist. I mean, once he did that work in her life, she went and told some people about it. So Jesus uses this woman, this woman, that broken woman, to bring many people to him. There's a quote, again, by Chip Ingram. He says, God will use even our baggage to bring others to eternal life. So as I close, I just want us to think about Jesus and the example that he gives interacting with a sinful Samaritan woman, crossing boundaries of race, gender, religion, socioeconomic status, and even holiness. You know, as you think about people that look or act different from how you look or act? How are you defined how you were raised and what you were taught and how you were taught to stay with people that are just like you? How are you reaching across those boundaries to reach the Samaritan men and women, those walking under the shame of the name they know they're carrying? How are you defying who you're supposed to be, who the world says you should be, and reaching people that look different than you and act different than you. They may dress different than you. How are we doing that? I think of 514 Revolution, a ministry that has been going into the strip clubs to reach women, 
it's, it's beyond me, but Jesus went to this sinful woman. They're going to women that are struggling. So we must intentionally break through these barriers, barriers to reach people with the gospel. That excites me. So let me close in prayer, and then I just have something real quick I wanted to share. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you went to the well. You went to Samaria, that city that had a bad name. And you reached out to that woman who needed you. She's the very essence of who needed a Messiah, who needed the coming King, the Savior of the world. We just thank you for that grace. And we thank you for truth. I thank you for how we've learned tonight in your word that there's grace and there's truth. And I pray that we would receive the grace and the truth of who you are, that we would receive you as the bread of life, that we would come and believe, that we would eat your flesh. I pray that we would know you as the way, the mediator, the truth, the illuminator, and the life, the regenerator. I pray that we would know you as the resurrection and the life. And I just pray that you would bless these who have come tonight. I just thank you for the privilege of sharing and teaching and being able to be excited on the stage and just to be myself and to say, oh, I get so excited. And they're just so gracious with me, Lord. We thank you for our time in Jesus' name. Amen.